Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host of this show. Welcome to it. And our guest today is Jay Kiesling. He is a professor in the College of Chemistry at the University of California at Berkeley, where he runs the Kiesling Lab. And he's also the CEO of the Joint Bioenergy Institute. And he's been involved in um, several startups, probably most notably LS9 and Amaris. Um, he's got a new one now. We talked about that. Yeah, I was I was going to be in San Francisco, and I reached out to Jay and said, uh, I'm coming out that way, and would you like to be on the show? And he said yes. And I said, would you mind if I brought equipment out and we could do this face-to-face? And he said, no, he'd love that. So he, um, he had me into his house. He lives up on the Berkeley Hills, and uh, I met him there. Uh, it was a gorgeous day. I think maybe it's always a gorgeous day in Berkeley. I, I don't know. It was about 70 and sunny, and there were birds in the trees, and uh, it felt very far away from New York, where we were still getting snow at that point. And we uh, sat at a table, maybe in his dining room, and um, set the mics up and, and had a really good talk. We we talked about, he's from this uh, generational farm in Nebraska, and we talked about how he left the farm and uh, got to Michigan to study, and then um, how we got to Berkeley. And we talked about biofuels, sort of the, the rush that happened around biofuels in the mid-2000s, and the future of that field today. And we just talked about the future of metabolic engineering. Um, he's a delightful man. I really, really enjoyed talking to him. And I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think you need to know anything else. So here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Jay Kiesling. Listen up. Okay, um, how long have you been in this house? Ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Did you? So let's see. That's that's well after when you first came to Berkeley. Yeah, I've been at Berkeley for thirty years. Um, let's try this. So the first thing I think I want to ask you is, where were you born? I think I think Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah, I was born in Hastings, Nebraska. Uh, grew up in a small town called Harvard, Nebraska. Uh, so same as the university. Right. Uh, it's a town of now, I guess, about 700 people. Oh, really small? Really small. My yeah. high school graduating class had 21 people. That's smaller than mine. And I thought I went to a small school. Yeah. Uh, very rural community. Uh, my family has been there for, gosh, five, six generations. Really? Yeah. 
Do you know that history? Yeah, I know some of that history. Um, uh, we were raised on the farm that my great, great, great grandfather had homesteaded. And uh, it was just passed down through the generations. And they were all farmers? They were all farmers. All the way down to your family? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So at some point they immigrated west? That's right. That's right. I think came from Iowa or Illinois or Wisconsin in that region. And before that, they all came from Germany. And Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So then you, you basically grew up on the family farm? That's right. Totally. Yeah. And, and what was that? You know, how big was the spread? Did they have cattle? What kind of farm was it? So it's about 500 acres. Yeah. Relatively small by Nebraska standards. Yeah. Uh, we raised corn and soybeans. We had cattle and pigs. Um, I, I was not very fond of the pigs, and, and this is well documented. Uh, <laughs> if you look at the, the news stories, um, I always joke that my father stopped raising pigs when I left to go to college because he didn't have anyone to scoop the manure. Oh, that's why you hated the pigs. Yeah, yeah. I hated the pigs. Uh, yeah, we had about 200, and um, so still a, a small operation by today's standards, but... Uh, sure, but it, still 200 pigs is a lot of pigs to be cleaned up pigs, after. It's a lot of pigs, and, you know, I had chores at night to water uh, the animals, and, um, you know, in the winter, the hoses would freeze up, and so you always had to make sure they were drained. And, at night? At night, uh-huh. yeah, every night, and... Uh, uh, you know, Saturdays, I would often be stuck in a pig pen, scooping manure or something like that. Was it just, did you have siblings? I have one sister, younger. So the majority of this was falling to you then? Yeah, I think I bore the brunt of, of a lot of it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I tell people that it's, um, it's a good upbringing because... Uh, there's no amount of work for me that is too hard or too difficult now. That everything I do is so much easier than scooping hog manure. Yeah. But, I mean, you also were, you go to school for the day, then come home and have to oh, do yeah. all these chores. Oh, yeah. I went to school and did sports and things like that. Uh, but, yeah, uh, there were a lot of chores on the farm. In the morning, too? Not so much in the morning. Dad sheltered us hmm. uh, in the morning. We were expected to get school and... And, and do whatever. Yeah. Uh, this leads to this sort of... Well, first off, what, what sports were you playing? I did wrestling and football. I wasn't very good at either one of them, to be frank. I mean, I have to say, you look like you could have a, res- a wrestler's build. Yeah, I, I, I definitely have a wrestler's build. Uh, and and uh, yeah, it, it, I wasn't very good at them, but I participated in them. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But was there... Was there an expectation that somebody would run the family farm in the next generation? Um, not necessarily. My, my, I remember my mother said to me when I was quite young, um, she said something to the effect of, you don't want to be a, a farmer. You're smart enough. You can do something else, like be a doctor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. She said that to me very young. And, you know, I think what she knew then is that farming was become becoming corporate it was becoming expensive big farmers right yeah big farmers uh farmers have to be really big now in order to you know make money and um you know my family survived on the farm probably because in part it was all paid for it was it was homesteaded land and and so they didn't have all of those costs and my my father was very careful 
uh, with money and didn't expand like a lot of farmers did. And as a result, um, he didn't go out of business as as many of them have. Right. So he wouldn't, there was no huge gain. You, you weren't going to get rich on this farm, but also you were just going to be able to keep it afloat. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, was it sort of at the mercy of, you know, some years the crops are down, some years, I don't know, a virus comes through the pig population and wipes out a portion of them? No, because by that time, um, things were pretty well controlled. You know, we, we, uh, pigs all got antibiotics. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there'd be little things here and there. Uh, Hailstorms could come through and destroy a crop, yep. but we always had insurance, so that was covered. Um, everything is irrigated, pretty much, there. Uh, there's some dry land uh, farming, but not much. Everything is irrigated, so, you know, if it wouldn't rain... You're protected there. Yeah, too. we're protected yep. there. And so, um, I would say things were not that variable. Hmm. This when your when your mother's telling you, pulling you aside and saying, you know, you don't. Ha- I know that this is the family farm, but you don't need to do this. That suggests, like, did your father have that opportunity? Did your father also maybe not want to be a farmer, but that's how it came through the generations? Um, no, I think he wanted to be a farmer. In fact, uh, he. Let's see, he's eighty-two. He retired at eighty. Oh my god! So and he started farming at like twenty. So he was farming for sixty years, and and I think really loved doing it in this sort of classic way that you think about it 76 your father is still getting up and getting on the track in the morning and going out because yeah 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 so he did love it he, he loved it he loved it yeah and then also, your sister did she did any i guess the question is did anyone stay with the family no, farm so no this is the did. end of the line no for it that, well so uh we're renting it out now and and we'll keep it in the family but there won't be anybody living on the farm um, for the first, in fact, my father's pretty much moved to town. He goes out to the farm all the time, but but uh, there won't be anyone living on the farm for the first time uh, in in a hundred and some years. So the farmhouse is empty. Yeah, huh, that's kind of I don't know. It's kind of sad to think about that. I guess in, it, in in some ways, yeah. I mean, if you you know you look back at history i mean so many of the farmhouses have gone away right right? and and as as the farms have become corporate um but that's just the evolution of things and and the town used to be quite vibrant in the 20s and 30s and 40s probably into the the 60s and then it started this steady decline and um i think they have a grocery store back in town but at one point there was no grocery store and uh, only a gas station. And when you get to that point, the yeah. towns are pretty much going to evaporate. Eventually. Is it smaller now than when you were in high yes, school? It yes, is. Yes, yes. Uh, it was probably a thousand when I was in high school. And, and it shrunk down. Seven hundred. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, your mother tells you this, yes. and you think it sounds like a good idea because I'm sick of the pigs. So you know, were, were you interested in science at an early age? Yeah, um, I was always pretty good at science and math, and uh, enjoyed doing it. Uh, I had a few good teachers in high school that um, really encouraged me uh, and and uh, that's that really taught me the importance of just a few good teachers you don't need many you just need a, a one or two actually to really encourage someone to get them excited about science um, and and so I had that encouragement I also People have asked me how I got into biotech, and, and I remember 
in this would have been in the 70s, uh, maybe mid 70s, reading uh, in in Newsweek or Time or whatever it was about the founding of Genentech uh-huh. and about how they had gotten what they were doing and how they had gotten so many resumes in of people who wanted to work there. And I thought, wow, that that's what I want to go into. Uh, that sounds super exciting. And the, the concept of, you know, Genetic being this sort of company that was founded on an experiment. Like, we're going to do experiments here, and we have some money to try to do these, and we'll see what happens. I mean, I know they had a business plan, but... Well, engineering biology specifically. Exactly, right. right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that excited you. That was super exciting. This, uh, I wanted to ask, when... What does it look like when these teachers are saying they're encouraging? What are they saying? Like, listen, Jay, you you have an aptitude for this, or um, it's 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 that. And um, uh, I remember my math teacher would let me go ahead, mm-hmm. and and he had a course. One of the the math classes was, or maybe it was several of them, were self paced, and so I could run ahead and get farther and was not bored by what was going on. And that was super exciting. That's, does it, was it a fairly progressive school? Um, well, but, you know, it was as progressive as you can be, yeah. right? I, I, you know, again, I think, you know, a few good teachers can make a huge difference and, and uh, can be very encouraging. So it, it feels like they were worried about you being bored, as you said. Right. Yeah, because Jay's getting this, so let's let him move ahead and keep him, his ma- yeah. his brain. Well, that was in the math class, and the other classes, you know, I, it, it was it was relatively easy for me the the science classes, and yeah. and but you know all well I should say most of the classes were were pretty easy. It's high school, right? Right. right. Um, but but I really enjoyed it, and and I do attribute it to um, two or three really encouraging teachers so you thought i'm i'm going to college and i'm going for a science well so i went to college to go to med school oh you because did? i thought i, I was know gonna, that. look even though i saw this exciting thing going on at genentech um there aren't so many examples on the farm uh-huh. of of scientists and what you can do with a science degree other right. than become a doctor, exactly. right? right? And everybody said, oh, this is what the smartest people do. You should become a doctor. Yep. And and I thought that sounded exciting as well. Uh, so I went to college because I thought I was going to get a bachelor's degree and then go to med school. Right. So what happened? Well, a couple of things happened. Uh, again, uh, a few excellent teachers uh, and encouraging teachers, professors in college now. Uh, one of them uh, ran a field station in uh, western Nebraska. So uh, the University of Nebraska had this. I, w- I went to the University of Nebraska, got a full-ride scholarship there. And, oh, you did? Yeah. And um, uh, they have a field station in a, a town called Ogallala. And it's at the base of the world's second largest earthen dam. Um Lake McConaughey, mm-hmm. and uh, they have all these classes out there on, and they're and they're they're field biology classes. These are not genetic engineering classes. These are field biology classes, uh, ichthyology, uh, parasitology, um, 
just yeah ornithology uh-huh. and and so I and I I spent the entire summer there. It was a great excuse not to go home to the farm and, right. <laughs> and work on the farm over the summer, and it was just so exciting and stimulating. And so that and and I should say a couple of these professors were very anti pre med students. And I can kind of understand it. You know, yeah. the pre-meds and look, the medical profession is excellent and not, none of what I say is meant to, to, to put them down. But, but the pre-med students are often very worried about their grades uh-huh. in classes. And uh, I mean, without those grades, you don't get into medical school. That's right. School, that's so, right, right. That's right. right. And so for good reason, they're concerned about it. And, um, you know... There, there happened to be in in almost all of the disciplines that that involved science. There were a couple of tiers in biology. There were a couple of tiers. There was the lower tier that was kind of for the pre med students, and there was the upper tier for the majors. Same thing in chemistry. There was the lower tier that was the the pre med students, and the upper tier, which was the chemistry majors. And I was a chemistry and biology major, and. Um, uh, I, I, I took the upper tier classes and I remember some of my, um, I was in a fraternity and some of my fraternity mates who were also pre-med said, what are you taking those harder classes for? You should be taking the lower classes to get the grades, to get the great right. grades, because you may not get great grades in those upper tier courses. Uh, and, but, but it was, uh, uh, more exciting. It, it, the material was deeper. Um, you got into to more challenging subjects. Anyway, back to the field station. Um, I just I I started to you know think about research, and they started to they they said you should really get involved in undergraduate research, and so I got involved in or uh, synthetic organic chemistry research. Uh huh. I can't say I was very good at it. I have some great undergraduate students in my laboratory yeah, and have over the last 30 years. I mean, some of them have been amazing. I don't think I was one of those amazing students. You didn't stand in, out. In the, in the laboratory. Uh-huh. I was very good with classes, but, but in the laboratory, I don't think I was excellent at research. And, you know, part of it was uh, I had a lot of stuff going on in college. I was in activities and things like that. Part of it was maybe I wasn't as interested in the synthetic uh, organic chemistry, um, but I had a few genetics classes. I really thought that was fantastic, yeah. and that's what then rekindled this this um, interest I had in you know reading the genetech story and the and the fact that in these genetics classes I I could grasp the technology that they were talking about in that early genetech. Uh, article and that they were doing at Genentech. It was the core of that. You know, how do you clone a gene? How do you express a gene? Um, how do you transplant it to a microbe? Right. Uh, and so that's what got me super excited about the future of biotech. So that, but so then you're, that interested you so much that you began to think, well, I, maybe it isn't med school. I mean, I know that that's sort of an idyllic pursuit, but my interests are not actually in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I decided probably by the time I was a junior, at least, hmm. uh, that, that, uh, I wasn't going to go to medical school, but I was going to go to graduate school. When did you, how did your mother take that news? Well, my mother had died by then. Ah, uh, 
you know, my, my family generally um, was super supportive. They didn't understand it so much. Yeah. Um, but they were very supportive. And, and, you know, when I went to graduate school, they, in science, you get paid, not well, but yeah. you get paid yeah. to do the research and, uh, and get a degree on top of that. And I thought that was amazing that they were going to pay you to do that. Yep. And my family thought so too. Gosh, I could support myself. So, um, yeah, I just went off and did that. Can, can I ask how your mother died? Yeah, she was in a car accident. Oh, okay. So a sudden, it was a very terrible sudden. hole. Was, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it was very tragic. You, while you were in college? No, 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 no. I was 11 years old. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, right. So then it would have been a, at a young age where she was pulling you aside saying, you yes, know, you can do yes, something beside exactly. the farm and you held exactly. on to that. Yeah, you yeah. held on to that and this concept of Genentech all the way through college until you moved away from medical school. That's right. thought of it. Yeah. yeah exactly. Okay. So did you, did you look around at various schools thinking, you know, did you understand what you wanted to study yet? No, I didn't, but I, I think part of it comes back to being from a farm. I was very practical. Yeah. And I wanted to get into the practical side. Producing things really excited me. Uh, the science excited me as well, but really being able to produce something. And so I, I, I took this big risk. I, I didn't have any chemical engineering training, but I decided to apply for graduate school in chemical engineering. And probably the best thing I did but it could also have turned out to be the worst. Yep. Um, because uh, chemical engineering was moving into biotech at the time, this would have been uh, the um, mid-80s, so uh -huh. 1986 is when I graduated from Nebraska. Um, and so there was a lot of interest in chemical engineering and how to scale up these processes. And, and it had been going on for, for you know years before that. Um, but... Then chemical engineers were getting into the actual genetic manipulation and, and doing that and, and engineering organisms that might be better in tanks, that might produce a particular product in a better way. Um, if you think about the chemical engineering discipline, um, I mean, it, it kind of grew out of, out of civil engineering and petroleum industry uh -huh. and designing these big reactors. Right. Um, to process petroleum and to separate petroleum um, and what we call unit operations. And then chemical engineers started to drill down into the catalysts that actually do the splitting of the, the petroleum molecules to make you know gasolines and uh -huh. things like that because that was a, a, an important part of that process. And right, so, and how to do it better at scale, cheaper, etc. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. So industry was driving it, really. Pardon me. Industry was driving. Industry it. was driving it. Yeah. Right, right, and this need, and and so it was the the fifties and sixties where probably the sixties really where chemical engineering became much more science based, physics and chemistry based, and um, and then that kind of grew as as chemical engineering grew into the biotech industry. Then it became much more bio based, mm -hmm. and um, so I I saw this as a potential way to do the practical side um, and get a PhD. 
Um, but I really didn't know what I was doing at the time. I mean, it was, it was a big leap to go into chemical engineering rather than to go into chemistry. Uh-huh. Um, but I was unique because I didn't have a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. Um, it also made it a little more difficult. Uh, but I was in a discipline that was really um, mainly chemical engineers coming in, right? So most of the graduate students in, in chemical engineering graduate school had gotten their bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. So I was unique. I had a stronger biology and chemistry background than many of them, but was completely lacking in the engineering courses. Do you feel like that brought, you brought some um, different angles to your research because you had a different background than everybody else? You, you saw things maybe in a slightly different way because your experience had been different. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, everybody's experience influences, you know, the kind of research they do. Um, and certainly I think having a strong biology background really helped me. Yeah. Um, and it, it probably made me quite unique then when I went out looking for jobs after graduate school as well right. because I was trained in this strange way. Did you, so, I, I mean, I know you went to Michigan, but did you, were you sort of uh, applying widely? I didn't apply that widely and, and probably should have. Uh, Michigan had a really strong program, uh, had some um, really great people in kind of the biotech area. They had... Um, kind of gone out early and hired in that area. Yeah. And uh, my uh, advisor at, at Michigan, um, Bernard Paulson, uh, was, had just been hired a couple of years before. So he was a young assistant professor when I came on board as a graduate student. And uh, that was also really great because yeah. I got to see him go up through the ranks. And I think it's good to see, uh, you know, to have a mentor that's going up through those. I mean, there's positives and negatives, right? You can also say that, oh, having a senior mentor is right. also really good. Right. But you, 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 you're sort of young, so maybe the age difference wasn't even that great between the two. Yeah, but you probably see, seven years or so. Yeah, okay. So you could see how his career advanced. You, yes. you saw the ways that you would move up through. Right, Okay. exactly. And so you stayed there through your PhD. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I also worked with uh, uh, a microbiologist, Steve Cooper. Uh -huh. And uh, so I had kind of a strange joint project uh, between the two labs. Uh, and uh, so Bernard had tons of money. He was a great, is a great fundraiser and had had a relatively big lab in, in the chemical engineering department. Steve Cooper um, was a senior person, had, had done seminal work in... Um, in the cell cycle mm -hmm. of, of bacteria and had nobody in his laboratory um, and hadn't really raised a ton of money and I think was quite proud of the fact that he hasn't raised, hadn't raised a ton of money. And, and so I got to do this, see, I got to see both of them and, and how they worked and, and got to work with both of them. And it was a really um, fantastic experience. So when you, you, when you finished that, what were you, I mean, I know you did a postdoc, but were you thinking, you know, you sort of narrowed down where you wanted your research to be? Yeah, I knew what I wanted my research to be. And uh, so then I went out and applied for faculty positions. Uh, so I applied for faculty positions at the same time I was applying for postdoc positions. Mm -hmm. Because in those days, it's kind of the dark, early, many uh, you know, decades ago now, yeah. um, it was not as common for 
chemical engineering faculty to have had a postdoc. Many of them came into their faculty positions without having a postdoc. Uh-huh. It's very different now. Yeah. Um, as the discipline has matured. So uh, I applied for faculty positions and I also applied for postdoc positions at the same time with the idea that I would get uh, a faculty position and then take a leave of absence and do a postdoc. And that's what I did. And uh, I did a postdoc at Stanford in Arthur Kornberg's lab. Aha, uh-huh. okay. So I think you were, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe 28 when you got the position at, at Berkeley, yeah? 27. 27. Yeah, and then started, let's see, I started in 92 when I would have been 28. Ah, so you got the position, did the postdoc, and then did. And so the other professors there, I'm assuming, were much older. Um, Actually, uh, Berkeley had uh, some really awesome young people um, who were uh, early 30s. And, you know... Berkeley has is is like the number two department, chemical engineering department in the country, and mm-hmm. and has been for decades. MIT is uh, number one. Uh, it's just it's a fantastic department. You know, it's it's in the College of Chemistry. Mm-hmm. So uh, the College of Chemistry, um, there's there's only three colleges of chemistry in in the U.S. Uh, Illinois, Caltech, and Berkeley. Uh-huh. And uh, so chemical engineering at Berkeley grew out of chemistry. Right. And um, so, so, and chemistry, by the way, is celebrating 150 years uh, in existence uh, on Friday at Berkeley. So, oh, the, the department. Uh, yeah. College of Chemistry. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so, so uh, it's just a, a fantastic department, had excellent young faculty in it. And I was just um, so thrilled to be uh, invited uh, to join the faculty. Uh, I would say that that's probably one of the big uh, moments of my life, that, my career. That position. Yeah, getting that position. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's made all the difference in the world. In what way? Meaning? Well, um, so, so I'm in a highly ranked department in a highly ranked university. Berkeley is, you know, usually ranked as the number one public institution in the world. Yep. And, and so there's a fantastic science that goes on at Berkeley. The people are very collaborative. Uh, it's in uh, this fantastic place to live. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine living in a better place. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the biotech community here and the startup community is unparalleled. Incredible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, that has really influenced um, the last 20 years of my career. I see. So you're saying if you'd gone to some other, if you'd gotten some other position, this one hit just hit on all cylinders. It was a great school, a great department. You were young. There are young people in there. It's tied to the biotech industry already or was, was being tied to it, I suppose, yeah. in the 80s like that. Everything that you needed was right here, and oh, yeah. everything opened up. Everything opened up. Uh-huh. I I still to this day kind of pinch myself uh, at the fact that I'm here. Um, you know this imposter effect. <laughs> yeah, or, I, I was going to ask about that, yeah. especially at that young age. Yeah. Did you have sort of like, gosh, what am I? How did I get here so fast? How did I get here? I should probably shouldn't be here. Um, and you know that's it's it's that's good and bad. Um, 
it really, you know, I, I knew that I had to work extremely hard mm -hmm. and you know, everybody here works very hard, right? What I love about Berkeley is it's clearly not about the money. If you go around and look at the buildings, they're crappy mm -hmm. compared to, you know, go across the bay to, to Stanford. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there are walls that are unpainted and, and, uh, so it's not about the facilities. It's not about the money. It's about the people. Yeah. And in some ways, that's the best way to have it because uh, it only got to be great because of all the great people. So these great people constantly almost raise the level and you have to work really hard to keep up. A collaborative competitiveness. Yeah, it's, it's definitely both of those things. Um, and, and I think those are great because you don't want an environment where um, it's not competitive in some way when we're not, it is, and it isn't competitive in that it's that you don't want to let the institution down. Exactly. Right. You, 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 you don't want to be seen as a deadwood in, in the institution. You want to be seen as, as. Uh, adding to the institution and that's what I say when I say it's competitive that's kind of what I mean yeah. is that I don't want to let the place down so this sort of imposter syndrome thing you said it's good and it's bad it's good because it makes you work really hard but were there a couple of years in the beginning where you thought ah, I don't know yeah I mean um, even even now I you know I'm in awe of of my colleagues at, in the institution and and I, I still try to be a better person and a better scientist and a better engineer because I see all of this great work going on. And, and I, I see my younger, earlier career colleagues and I see how phenomenal they are. And, and I think to myself, boy, I don't know that I would have gotten a job here if I was competing against them. Uh, I and, totally get that feeling. And, yeah. and actually, I love that. I love that, and because uh, that means the institution is doing well. Right. Okay. So yeah, you've continued to, with everyone else, raise the level for the boats, all the boats, yeah. and that is bringing in you know young intelligent people. That's right. Right. That's right. I want to ask this one more thing, but you know you were looking for professorship. Did you get offers anyplace else? I did. I did, and didn't even consider. You didn't. Okay. After I got the Berkeley offer. Right. That okay. Was like, that was the one. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I want to talk about some of your breakthroughs that you've had in the sure. research at Berkeley. And then I, then I want to talk about the industry a little bit. So the first one that I, you sort of this, I mean, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but you discovered isoprenoids. Yeah. Can you take me through that? Yeah. So um, when I started at Berkeley, uh, one of our colleagues, uh, James Bailey, had coined the term metabolic engineering. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was this idea that you could engineer the metabolism inside cells to make products that would be useful. And um, it's, it's kind of one step further from genetic engineering. If you think about, you know, genetic engineering, at least as, as it was practiced in the early days by Genentech and other companies, was producing a protein. Yep. Human growth hormone, human insulin. This was the idea that you would produce several pr proteins that might be um, enzymes in a metabolic pathway. So your product would not be the protein itself, but mm -hmm. it would be some metabolic product. 
And, and, and that was, he wrote that paper in 91 and I started it at Berkeley itself in 92. Perfect timing. I could come in in the ground floor of, of this new revolution. This, kind yeah, of, yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a kind of new discipline. And so you have to distinguish yourself because it's James Bailey's kind of at the time, the God of, of biotech uh-huh. uh, at, and he uh, was a professor at Caltech. And um, so I said, okay, you know, I've got this biology background. I spent my PhD working on plasmid replication in bacteria. I'm going to work on building tools for uh, metabolic engineering so that we can precisely control gene expression inside the cell. Because I had this hint, you know, if the protein isn't the product, you don't want to be filling the cell up with it. You want just enough to be catalytic. Right. Um, so that you're not wasting the cell's energy producing that protein, but in fact using the cell's energy to produce the product that that protein would make, or products. So um, you needed precise control inside the cell. And you know a lot of the genetic tools at the time were created for overproducing human growth hormone or human insulin or proteins like that that were the product themselves. And so we started working on how to, to carefully control metabolism mm-hmm. inside the cells. We needed a subject matter to do that. And so we spent a lot of time working on the controls. And um, one of my colleagues said to me, well, that's fine, Jay. What are you going to do with those tools? And so we found isoprenoids. And um, uh, that was, uh, I think, really important because it gave us a nice set of molecules, a very big set of molecules that we could work on. Um, and so we started in working on uh, isoprenoids, and it includes things like carotenoids, so lycopene, which makes tomatoes red, and beta-carotene, which makes carrots orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it includes Taxol, the $2 billion a year anti-cancer drug, which is an incredibly complicated molecule. Um, and it included things like artemisinin, the anti-malarial drug, which I knew nothing about at the yeah. time. Um, and this, this was a natural product that was being, I think, like extracted in a probably pretty onerous way that you find a way to produce it, which I think, I mean, my question was, what did that do to treating malaria? Did it make it easier to scale it? Did it bring the cost down? Yeah. So, so um, let me take you back into that. So a graduate student brought me a paper on artemisinin um, when we were looking at, oh, what would be good things to go after? And, and we looked at the molecule. It didn't look too difficult. Um, and so we started in on it. Um, we had to synthesize the first gene in the pathway that comes from the plant naturally because the person who was working on it wouldn't send it to us. And mm. uh, luckily there was a, a technique that had been developed by Pim Stemmer, who had started Maxigen across yeah. the bay, um, to, to be able to synthesize genes from oligonucleotides. And so we, we built the gene and had, we had to fix it because it had all kinds of errors in it, got it to work. And published this very nice paper in Nature Biotech showing that we could produce a morphodyne, the, uh, one of the precursors to artemisinin. And there was, I think, a fair amount of excitement in the community. Uh, and, and a couple of pharmaceutical companies called me up and said, we'd really like uh, to get this organism from you because uh, we're producing artemisinin. And I said, well, we're really going to have to do the next step, which is to oxidize the amorphodyne. Mm-hmm. And, and I heard this long pause on the phone and they're like, well, and I said, and it's going to take money to do that research money. Um, we don't have a grant to do that right now. And, and they're like, 
well, we don't make any money off of this. Our shareholders would never let us put money into research. That's what this. I was going to ask. That's what I was worried about. Yeah. So uh, I got into contact uh, with a person in public health at Berkeley. Um, she introduced me to Victoria Hale at uh, One World Health. And uh, we wrote a proposal to the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation and got a $42 million grant um, to produce this and then to, you know, do all of the scale-up work and, and get it out. And um, we started a company, Amaris, with that grant, and we ramped up the research in my laboratory. We found the, the next step in the biosynthetic pathway. Um, we got it into yeast. Yeast produced it. Um, and... <clears throat> We published another paper on it that was a pretty high-impact paper that's been well-cited. Um, and then we uh, wrote a call for proposals to pharmaceutical companies, proposals to scale up the technology and to get a license to it. And uh, Sanofi won that um, award. And uh, they scaled up the technology. It, the, 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 the microbial side of it we put it into yeast and mm -hmm. so yeast produces artemisinic acid mm -hmm. not artemisinin there's another step that needs to be completed to date no enzyme has been found um, that catalyzes that in the plant and there might be an enzyme some colleagues are are looking at it and have some inkling that they might have found one but uh, it was known that it could be um, that last transformation could occur with light and they even have a theory that in the plant, um, the plant produces artemisinic acid and then sunlight converts it uh -huh. into artemisinin. But um, nonetheless, the process is that yeast produces artemisinic acid, you purify it, and then you convert it into artemisinin using this light-catalyzed reaction. And Sanofi scaled that up. Um, they put out, I think it was on the order initially, 15 million doses mm. of uh, the drug made from this route. Um, and then I think it's, it's gotten up to about 50 million doses have gone out to Africa and um, Southeast Asia using this process. But ever since that um, process has been introduced, uh, the price of artemisinin has been extremely low. And so the other way to get artemisinin is, is by growing the plant and extracting it from the plant. Um, and while we were developing this process, a lot of um, farmers in China, yeah. and, and, and primarily very big farmers, corporate farmers, um, realized that, um, number one, this is a traditional Chinese medicine. Right, that's how it was first discovered, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and number two, that they could um, produce lots of this and, and maybe make money. Aha, and okay. so prior to that, it was produced in small on small farms um, in Vietnam and other countries. Um, since it's moved mainly to China, but ever since we've introduced the microbial process, the price has been really low for artemisinin. So, you know, uh, it's hard to say if the microbial process pushed that to be so low, or if it just happened because all of those large corporate farms opened up supply supply right. yeah. yeah nonetheless that's um one big accomplishment because um if you can keep the price low for people who need the drug then and people who learn earn less than a dollar per day yeah. then that's worth it 
Right. So that that was the end effect. E- either way, was that the price was kept lower. The price so, yeah. is very low. The yeah. price is low. And the microbial process um, right now is not producing artemisinin, but it's ready to go and can be ramped up very quickly. If we find the one yeah. enzyme that's needed. Well, if we find the one enzyme that's needed, that will reduce the micro- the cost of the microbial process. And right. yes, that would that would probably make the difference there. And, and number two, if the price ever goes back up. I, I was under the impression that both Amaris and LS9, so Amaris was founded on artemisinin, yes. n- not for biofuels. No. So, um, uh, yeah, so Amherst started, um, 2003 is kind of the founding, but we got the money in two, late 2004. Amherst, uh, then in 2005 was doing work on artemisinin and my lab and Amherst were working hand in hand. Uh-huh. And it was a great collaboration and Amherst attracted the most amazing scientists who are still, many of them are still there. Um, I have a huge amount of respect for all those folks. Um, and uh, then Amherst hired a CEO, uh, and we also had to... Oh, sorry. Before we hired the CEO, we actually um, uh, were looking for the A round of funding. Right. And, um, and we're trying to decide what to do, because we knew we weren't going to make any money off Artemisinin, but... The PR from Artemisinin. Huge, right? Huge, huge. It's, you know, it's PR you can't buy. And at the time, um, there was a lot of interest and, you know, still is in climate and uh, biofuels. And we got some really fantastic A-round investors. Uh, uh, John Dorr, Vinod Kosla, and mm-hmm. Jeff Duick from, oh, right. from, you know, Kleiner, um, Kosla, and TPG and and you know it's a dream team of investors. Just I mean, again, fantastic. Uh, you have to pinch yourself um, because you know when you get great investors in a company, the money is probably the least of what they can. It's contribute. the connections. It's, it's the, the experience. Yes, right. Yeah, all of those yeah. things. This was your first company. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was, it was fantastic. And then we went out and hired, um, decided that kind of the fuel space would be a good one and went out and hired a CEO who's still the CEO now, John Mello uh, of Amaris. Um, and he came from uh, BP. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we went hard at, at biofuels. Well, I want to talk about that, yeah. right? Because I mean, I remember this myself. That when the government really began to focus on it, and it, it's you know, it's one of those f- biotechnology has a lot of um, claims, right? We're gonna uh, even I think at one point Bio's official creed was like feed fuel and something the world. Right? Biotech is gonna do all these things that are yeah. gonna make our lives better, and and it has delivered on many of those things. Mm-hmm. And the biofuels one didn't it never panned out, and and I was like, okay, is that because the technology wasn't quite there is it because the food versus fuel use of land is it because the price of oil got pushed down so low um i wonder what your thoughts were about that well okay so first i run a biofuels research institute yeah the joint bioenergy institute and uh uh so take whatever i say with a grain of salt um but i do know the industry pretty well and 
you know, it, so first of all, it's really hard to compete with petroleum because when petroleum hit, you know, $125, $150 a barrel, not too different than it is today. Exactly. Um, that encouraged a lot of people to come up with a lot of solutions. Right. And that's when they came up with fracking. Right. Right. And that's when fracking became really, you know, economically viable yep. to do. And uh, the U.S. went from a net importer to a net exporter, right? I mean, we were importing like two-thirds of our uh, petroleum, mm -hmm. and now we're exporting, right? So it, it's, it's been a huge change. But how do you compete with that when, when the price of oil goes down to $30 a barrel? Uh, how do you compete with that when the saudis can make money on seven dollar a barrel oil hmm. yeah how do you compete with that and and you know there are all these externalities that we don't um add on to the price of gasoline we don't add on what climate change is going to cost this country right the you know potentially trillions of dollars many billions of dollars that that it's going to cost yep. this country right we don't add any of that on and, um, and, you know, we, we send the military into the Mideast and protect it. Um, and and um, so, so, number one, it's really hard to compete. Um, Amaris and other companies developed some really fantastic technologies. Amaris has a diesel that is kind of a, a dream diesel. I mean, it, it is, you know, diesel engines can run on it. You know, on, on that pure molecule, um, it's extremely efficient. It's, um, they, they can actually run, you know, you can get more on a gallon of their, more miles out of gallon of their fuel than you can out of gallon of number two diesel. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have the particulate matter. It doesn't have the, you know, all of the other kind of nasties associated with it. But it can't compete. It's too expensive to produce. Yeah, yeah. price. So, I mean, at the time, I remember thinking, well, you know, we're going to be switched over to biofuels in about a decade or so, you know, and we'd already seen ethanol was 10% of going into yeah. your tank. And, and you could see that this pathway sort of laid out. What's, look, let's look at what Brazil has done. They, you, yeah. Your cars switch back and forth between sugarcane and gas. Um, and now, now it feels like the issue is that we're, we're going to go to electric cars, right, which is a welcome change. But where does that leave the biofuels industry? Well, so um, first of all, Switching over to electric is is going to take time. There was a New York Times article a year or so ago uh, on um, you know the the average car is in the fleet for fifteen years, and so even if we um, have no uh, uh, gasoline cars built after twenty thirty five, that they'll still be some on the road, on the road in right. twenty fifty. Right, right, and so it's good. And and you know, it's a very if you drive around Berkeley, California, you think, oh, the fleet's half fifty percent electric. No, it's not. It's tiny. Yeah, it's a tiny fraction. And uh, I don't know what it is two percent, maybe three percent. I I don't know. It's it's but it's very small. Um, so it's going to take years. Uh, and, you know, we're going to see some electric trucks out there. We already see them. Tesla's coming out with them, Mercedes and a few others. What we, and there, there are companies that are 
are um, making electric planes. Or, uh, I was going to ask about that. Electric planes. But you know, the, the energy density in a battery is between 100 and 1,000 fold off of what it is in a fuel. Yep. Which means that you have to have a thousand, a hundred to a thousand times the size um, battery of you, of a fuel tank relative to a fuel tank in order to fly that distance. Uh, yeah, and you can't do that There's, because of the weight problem. Yeah, right? the weight right. problem. Right. You know what they're talking about are small planes um, that would go short distances. You know, maybe that will change. There could be a discovery in the battery area that could change that dramatically. But, you know, you think about planes, right? There, you think about 15 years for a car, you know, planes, 30 years, 40 yeah. years, right? Yeah. I mean, they're just retiring some of these 747s that were built in the 70s. Yeah. Um, so so uh, that's going to take even longer. And, you know, that's where we have a real chance with biofuels um you know we can make the kind of energy dense fuels that are needed for planes um but we're probably not going to be able to make them um economically competitive with petroleum fuels right now um so it's going to take some kind of government regulation Mm -hmm. um requirements um but i think you know we're starting to see that we see that in in um in, in a lot of the, the commercial airlines saying, okay, we're going to try some of these biofuels. That's fascinating. I've, so it feels like, so, so I think like GM has said they're going to have something like 30 models, EV models by 2025. And I think mm-hmm. Ford said something they'd have, they would produce like 600,000 mm-hmm. EVs by 2023. So like the, they're actually, the push is coming for those. Right? That, that wow. seems inevitable at this point as soon as they figure out charging stations and everything yep. else. And with industry behind it, they will figure it out because they'll put the money into it. So that may, like the consumer car, if we can call it mm-hmm. that, will go electric. But the 18-wheelers, the planes, will still need liquid fuels, and that's yeah. where biofuels can play. Yeah. yeah, you know, so there is a move to uh, do electric 18-wheelers. Um, but is, Tes- that, is that practical? Well, Tesla says they can do it. Huh. I don't know. I mean, I, we haven't seen the truck. Yeah. Uh, and there's been a move to use... Um, uh, liquefied natural gas, LNG, for uh, trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that retrofit is... So that's... Number one, that still is natural gas that's produced from petroleum, right? Mm-hmm. It comes yep. from underground, but it's cleaner than diesel. So that's one step in the right direction. And maybe you could get natural... You know, uh, uh, biologically produced natural gas, uh, biogas, uh, which would be renewable... Um, but they're talking about those LNG trucks. So, but that's going to take time as well. Right. right? Um, so yeah, I think there's a possibility for, and, and for diesels and jet fuels. And the great thing is that, um, diesel and jet fuel looks quite a bit alike. They're, they're, they're very similar, um, jet fuel, uh, characteristics. It, It has to have very low freeze temperature and few other things that are important for jet fuels um but but those could be very similar fuels the military has been pressing for a single fuel that Mm. you know so that at the front line they don't have to think about okay do we have diesel do we have gasoline do we have jet they could just have a fuel that would work in diesel engines and and jet engines um 
And, you know, there's another place where the government could make a decision. The government could say, okay, the military is going to be green. I, this brings me back to home because it can be great for farmers in the Midwest, right? You know, I, so having lived on a farm and seeing, you know, fluctuations in corn prices, and I remember, I remember uh, my father said several times that the corn price um, historically on a, say, a $1972 basis was the best in uh, the Nixon administration because they had made deals to sell grain uh, around the world. And then, you know, various um, presidents and, and congresses have decided to use it as a political weapon, um, you know, in, in um, economic wars against other countries or mm -hmm. holding back sales. And I'm not saying that's wrong necessarily, but what that causes the price to fall dramatically. And, and so, you know, the price would, would rise and fall dramatically and farmers, you know, put a lot of farmers out of business when yep. the price was extremely low. Um, in fact, in, in many years, they couldn't sell it for what it cost to make it. And this would give another market. And because it's for transportation fuels, we're going to be using those. Yeah. You know, forever. But right? you're saying they'd be growing corn. Well, not necessarily corn, right? There are other crops that they could grow if there's a market for them. Right? That's right. So, yeah. so at, at the Joint Bioenergy Institute, we're working on developing sorghum as an energy crop. And it, it grows well everywhere. And it, in a lot of places, it can doesn't need as much water, say, as uh -huh. corn. May not need as much fertilizer. It can be planted once and then harvested many times. So it's very similar to sugarcane in many ways. Um, so there are crops that they could have, or they could also plant corn, take the corn, and that could be cattle feed, and take the stalks, and that could be... That's good, right. Because is the argument fuels. that corn, it, for all the energy it requires to grow, it doesn't have a particularly high energy yield as a fuel, right? Yeah, yeah. So sorghum would be better for that. And In fact, I taught that yesterday in... Um, by my biomolecular engineering class, we were looking at you know ethanol production. I was teaching ethanol production, and um, and then we had a table looking at the energy yield uh, of um, ethanol from corn. When you put all of the kind of externalities in it, you put in the you know the the energy cost of fertilizer, you put the energy cost of tilling and harvesting and planting and all those things into it, and the energy out is about break even with yeah. the energy in and some have even estimated that it is less yeah now we have ethanol because it's also a good oxygenate for gasoline right. so in california we you know 30 years ago we used to use mtbe and that got into the groundwater and because of the structure of that molecule there aren't organisms that readily break it down as they would with ethanol and the linear hydrocarbons that we find in gasoline and diesel. I think it's it's probably improved our situation a lot. By so it having, still has benefits. It still has a lot of benefits yeah. to using it um, yeah. over what we used to use. Um, but there's no reason why it couldn't be, you know, 100%. If you look at Brazil, for instance, uh, you know, they had an energy crisis and they switched to ethanol and now most of their cars will run on 100% ethanol and um, and it it's works just fine yeah but but also to be fair 
um, uh, sugarcane grows pretty well in in Brazil. I mean, it, they get the right amount of water, and and those farms down there are really amazing. I got a chance to go with Amaris uh, to their site in Brazil, and I got to see them harvest. Uh, the sugar cane and process it. And they, they take the broth after the yeast has uh, grown up and produced the ethanol and they get the ethanol out. Um, they take the broth and put it on the field as a fertilizer. They, they take the yeast and spray dry it and it becomes uh, cattle feed mm-hmm. because it's high in protein. Um, the, the bagasse, which is what you, what's left over the sugar cane after yeah. you squeeze the sugar out, they burn and produce electricity. So the whole process down there is just, it's, it's just a model for renewability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's two things I want to ask you. Sure. And one is, so as this, we were talking about this rush to biofuels and the government was putting money into it and, and all that, th- those companies have somewhat either pivoted or died out. That's right. And so, um, you know, suddenly everyone's doing, well, we're going to do clean chemicals, we're going to do green chemicals. And, and the question is, what is the future for metabolic engineering? Yeah. Um, so first, I think the, the future is bright, um, but I think we have to look very hard at, at the practical side of it as well. What can you produce um, in an economically viable way? And I'm not saying that that's what should dictate all of our science, but if we're going to scale something up, we better do it yeah. with things that are uh, economically viable. Now. So Amherst, what Amherst went through an extremely difficult period. And, um, you know, I think they've somewhat come out of that. Um, and the molecule that they're producing, uh, as a, a diesel molecule, they discovered that you could put two of those together and you could get a molecule called squalane. And squalane, um, is an emollient that's used in cosmetics and a lot of skin creams. And um, you'd normally get it from sharks, uh, shark livers, uh, but Amherst can produce it using their engineered yeast. And so they pivoted into molecules like this. Turns out a lot of our flavors and fragrances in colognes and, and in, in foods are terpenes as well. And so they could produce those molecules. They've also engineered yeast to produce a sugar substitute that would normally come from a plant but has many different um, side molecules that don't have the same sweetness and so Amherst could hone in and produce that the exact molecule and so they have now a product out that's um, uh, a sweetener Um, that that is a no-cal sweetener um, sugar substitute so so you know the companies that are still around were able to pivot, um, but other companies are not around yeah. because they weren't able to pivot. Yeah, but these these pivots, so uh, you know, ingredients for uh, fragrances or cosmetics or sweeteners. I mean, those have to be quite low in cost, right? So and and then sold in a massive amount. I would think it's not the typical biotech is you make some drug probably, and that drug gets on the market, and you can charge four hundred thousand dollars a year for it, right? So are they able to do that? They can produce an. I guess is the need great enough? Yeah. yeah. So there are some molecules that are, so there are some that are extremely inexpensive, but, um, you know, an ingredient in a cologne, um, it turns out it doesn't take much of the molecule to give you a scent. You know, most of the, the, the volume of a cologne is alcohol, right? It's going to evaporate, right? right? And so, 
um, some of those molecules are quite valuable. And so, that's true. Right? And you don't need the huge volumes that you need with fuels, right? And, and so, yeah, there's some molecules that are still quite difficult to go after, but there are a lot of molecules that, that, um, that we can go after. So that the economics work there. The economics do work huh. um, for those. And, and, you know, if there are some, some fragrances that they, they find challenging to make chemically, and, um, and, and so biology might be the only way to make those. Uh, there's a, a molecule that that comes out of whale barf, and basically it's you know it's the krill and everything else that the whale eats, and they spit it up, and it becomes this big mass that that gets um, washed ashore, and then they go out and collect it, and they get a molecule from that that's um, an important ingredient in in uh, perfumes and colognes, and that is remarkable. And, and you can engineer yeast to produce that molecule and not have to go through. And have to wait off. on the, the vagaries <laughs> of, a, of whale vomit. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think we're just beginning to touch the surface of that, of the things that can be produced that have value, which replace something that we found naturally or mined or extracted or et cetera. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, and then there's the pharmacide too. There are a lot of interesting small molecules um, out there, we've got a, a, I can't really talk about it now, but we've got a really exciting project with pharma company um, uh, doing uh, metabolic engineering to get yeast to produce a, a desired molecule. And and it's and it's an order of magnitude harder than the Artemisinin yeah. project. Yeah. And, um, you know, when we're able to talk about that, it's going to be uh, super, super exciting. Uh, we've got another uh, project at my lab in in Copenhagen where we've been engineering yeast to produce um, uh, an incredibly complicated natural product um, that's kind of been a holy grail out there, and um, we we have pretty much accomplished that, and and that's about to to come out as well. Mm. And so I think the um, there are some really cool and interesting and important things we can still do with metabolic engineering. And I'm still hopeful that we can get fuel yeah. in a tank of some vehicle as well on a regular basis. Yeah. And that, that, so can you tell me about Zero Acres Farms? That's yeah, a new one. Yeah. Zero Acre Farms is a new company. Um, uh, so um, we eat a huge amount of, of oil. It's a big fraction of our diet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of companies that have been focusing on protein. And, but not so many companies focused on uh, oils, at least what I would say is these kind of next generation of companies. And there's a, um, an important problem we're trying to solve, and that is that um, we get a lot, most of our oil from seeds, um, rapeseed and, and um, uh, soybean, mm -hmm. for instance, bringing up the farm again. Uh, and, and, uh, those oils are convenient because they flow. And so you can use them in big fryers and things like that. You can cart them around to restaurants. When the oil gets low in the fryer, you just add Pour a little in, bit right. more in. Right. But the reason they flow is because they're polyunsaturated. And what a few um, oil chemists and others have noted over the years is that those polyunsaturated oils um, oxidize. In the fryers, they they you know we're talking about you know 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Those things are running 
you know, maybe for 18 hours a day yeah. in some of these restaurants. Um, and there's, there's air in there, there's water in there. You know, when you throw French fries in and all of this causes these oils to oxidize and that produces aldehydes, uh, and has all kinds of toxicity issues. Somebody had said that a, a, a thing of fry, a pack of fries has, as, produces as many aldehydes as a pack of cigarettes. Oh. I don't know if that's completely correct. But the point is that it's toxic. And so some restaurants now are covering the, the fryers so that um, the workers don't get exposed. They to don't all breathe it these. in. Yeah. yeah. But there's also a lot of evidence that just eating these poly, lots of these polyunsaturated oils, even if they haven't oxidized, is bad for your health. Uh, linoleic acid. Um, looks like it's, it's a big problem that has caused a lot of health issues. So... Zero Acre Farms is really focused on this idea of delivering to the consumer healthy oils, oils that can be used in, you know, everyday use um, to fry foods in, um, to, you know, to put in, in various ingredients, um, to put in salads that will not be high in polyunsaturated fats, that will in fact be low in polyunsaturated fats, um, but still flowable. Yeah. Just one thing. So your uh, your dad never remarried. No, he didn't. So he, you see, he moved into town now. Yeah, and the the house is just on the farm that you still own the land, but the house is there. Yeah. Do yeah. you ever go back in into the house? Oh yeah, we have, we have, we helped him. Uh, gosh, it was a year and a half ago or something. So he moved into a, a newer house that my grandparents had built in town. His uh-huh. parents, and uh, when they retired. Uh huh. They didn't wait till 80 to retire. They retired earlier. But but we finally encouraged him to move at least into town to the newer house because the house on the farm was, you know, it's well over 100 years old, 120 yep. years old. So, um, But town being, I don't know, 50 homes or something. I, no. Well, it's more, than, it's more than 50, but, but, you know, 700 people. It's not, it's not big. Yeah, 700. Okay, right. So it's not big at all right but yeah. but he knows all the folks there yep. and and, yeah. and uh, we feel a little bit better about having him in town but he still goes out to the farm almost every day cuz he's got a shop out there and he does woodworking oh i see all okay kinds of projects yeah. and, i mean my my uh the the home i grew up in is no longer in our family but so i've always felt jealous people could go into the home they grew up in yeah. years later and do you do that at all yeah, yeah 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 uh you know, it's it's fun to go out on the farm and to see the farm. Uh, my kids been out there on the farm uh, and and have seen it. And, and what do they think of it? You're more than one. Uh, two kids, two. two sons. What do you um, think of it? You know, I think they find it interesting, and you know, they didn't have the experience there. And they, when they had gone out with me, say in the summer, we would lay out irrigation pipe with Grandpa oh, or something really? like that, but. But they didn't have the full experience that, in air quotes, that I had, and um, and by that you mean the pigs, the pigs, and you know it's just a lot of hard works, yeah. you know. So for them, it's fun, and you know, Grandpa shoots off fireworks and things like that. So for them, I think it's all associated with fun, and it isn't like I hate it, but but you know, we worked really hard on the farm, yeah. and and uh, and and it is nice to go out and see it because it is history. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. The sort of feeling like, especially because it was six generations, you said. Yeah. That's a lot of your family tied up in yeah. that land. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, okay, that was really good, Jay. Thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this. Hold on. All right, there it is. Your first Rounders podcast with Jay Kiesling. My thanks to Jay for for being on the show and for having me into your home. It was a great talk. I, I actually found it very educational, and um, I hope you guys did too. So if you'd like to find us and discuss this podcast, Nature Biotechnology, or anything that the journal does, you can reach us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. You can also find our sister podcast, Forum, wherever you find your podcast, and subscribe there, as well as our serial podcast, Hope Lies in Dreams, about Stan Crook, the history of antisense, and the terrible neurological disease, spinal muscular atrophy, and the first drug created for it. That's on the homepage of Nature Biotechnology and wherever you find your podcasts. I think that's it. Nothing else to say. So thank you for listening and goodbye. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.